start with prayer. Dear Lord, uh, thank you so much for another opportunity to meet on this uh, Sabbath day and to uh, fellowship with one another and to come together and discuss uh, the wonders of your love. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us and that you would help uh, challenge our minds to uh, see you from a new perspective and a new light and that we can come away refreshed, uh, feeling like we've had a personal encounter with you. Uh, thank you so much for everything you do. pray that you continue to be with Tim and Christy on their travels and uh, with all the members of the class that today who are unable to be here and those who are still traveling. Thank you for these things, and we pray uh, that you would lead us now. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so this week is uh, Lesson 5, entitled, Abigail, No Victim of Circumstances. Um, I'm going to go ahead, you might want to go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Samuel 25. I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights through it real quick so we don't have to read the whole thing. Starts off, we're introduced to Nabal, who is a wealthy Man, we find out, he owns about 3,000 goats and sheep. He's married to Abigail, who we're told is an intelligent and beautiful woman. We also find out that Nabal is a descendant of Caleb. Um, but the, but the uh, verse describes him as surly and mean in my version. I don't know what y'all say. Uh, sounds like a warm fellow. Uh, we find out that... Um, David uh, sends his men to go out uh, to go find Nabal and ask for supplies because they are in need. And uh, we also find out that David and his men have been protecting Nabal's men and their flock while they're out in the fields. Um, Nabal's response when David tells his men to go and get things from Nabal, I guess this is like a tradition that when the sheep shearing time is, you... You give gifts, and it's a time of plenty or something is kind of the way I envisioned it or felt it was described. And um, we find out that Nabal's response basically is to scoff at David. He says, who is this son of Jesse, and refuses to give them anything. So then David's men return and tell David what Nabal said, and David becomes just enraged and livid that basically that Nabal is questioning who he is and his position and all these different things. He takes offense to this. Uh, And he tells his men to put on their swords and says that God will deal with him severely if he leaves one male alive because they have repaid evil for good. Um, We see uh, the servants of Nabal go and tell Abigail what what, uh, Nabal said to David's men and tell them about how David had protected them, and that Nabal hurled insults in response. And she immediately loads a bunch of food and supplies onto donkeys and leaves to meet David uh, without telling Nabal. And when Abigail meets David, she bows before him, takes the blame for her husband's actions, begs for mercy um, on Nabal because he's a fool, and begs David not to avenge himself because God will soon make David king, and she suggests that David will regret what he's about to do. Um, David immediately recognized that she's speaking the truth, thanks her for stopping him for spilling blood. Um, David accepts her gifts and sends her home in peace. And then when Abigail gets back to, uh, uh, gets back, Nabal's actually throwing this big bash, and he's drunk and 
seems like quite a fellow. Um, Abigail waits till he's sober in the next morning, I'm guessing, and uh, then tells her what had happened with David and that, and then it says that uh, when she does, Nabal's heart fails and he turns to stone. And then David takes uh, Abigail as his wife shortly after that. So that pretty well sums up chapter 25. But uh, what what are some of y'all's immediate thoughts after just kind of running through the, the story there about the different characters involved in the story? Nabal was a rascal. Yes, he was. What about um, specifically about Abigail's role in this? Um, it kind of make the lesson makes it seem as though um, this was a arranged marriage. You know, like basically, like nobody would marry this jerk. So obviously, this has been an arranged marriage. Um, but um, what about her role in this? Not not only as as his wife, but um, kind of going out and being an intercessor, so to speak, between Nabal and David and whatnot. She filled some gaps. She knew what she had to do to stave off this reaction, and um, she wasn't afraid to do it. Yeah. Um, I was immediately struck by, I couldn't believe, like, you know, if you really sit there and think about putting yourself in the situation, like the risk that she was willing to take, um, not even just from the standpoint of like going out to meet David because, you know, he's a, got an, an armed army, uh, but also, I mean, she's really risking her life with her own husband. I mean, she's by not, you know, kind of receiving his blessing before she goes out to meet David, she's, she's kind of quietly behind his back going to do this. Um, so she's really taking a risk on the home front and out on her own going out to meet David. Um, yeah. One of the things that caught my eye was that when Nabal was confronted with the reality of his own behavior and you know, the nature of his own character, his heart failed. And, yeah. Yeah. I, I see some interesting parallels between that and time. Yeah. Some... some Version of the Lord struck him dead a few days later. Yeah, uh, I think the, well, I don't remember if I was in NIV or the net, the version I was in, but this uh, basically said his heart failed and he turned to stone. Right. Somewhat similar to the imagery we get from uh, Lot's wife. Uh, so I, I'd, be, I'd like to do a study of that a little further and see if there's the language, the original language, maybe actually reveals something about the turning to stone. You know? well, this is the lesson that suggests that he had a stroke. Yeah, it was the lesson that suggested he had a stroke. Um, I would, I would guess maybe the turning to stone would maybe the the, the, the paralysis and 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 the losing color too. You know, uh, that's kind of how I saw it in my mind. Um, uh, something uh, else that uh, I was blown away by with Abigail was the swiftness in which she acts. Like, basically, you get the picture that, like, the Nabal's servants go to her and tell her what's happened, and she's like, oh, my goodness, and immediately, like, loads up the donkeys and heads out. I mean, it's like no hesitation. And, I mean, to put your life at risk on, in two, on two fronts and, and uh, you know, 
whatever. Like it, it just, I, I would, I would have difficulty just like immediately rising to action. But maybe it's not the first time she's covered for her husband. <laughs> That's true. I, the thought did occur to me that uh, she knew her husband very well, and oh, I better go take care of this. Um, some other thoughts I had. Uh, I mirror what you said I, I couldn't I just you know couldn't believe how much of a jerk Nabal basically is and how selfish he is it's like he just doesn't even care it's like he knows exactly what David's done for his guys and he's just like whatever um, uh, another thing um, was I couldn't believe um, that a man after God's own heart David um was so quick to want to kill. I mean, what what did Nabal really do to him? Just sort of insulted him, you know, disrespected him, but like he's ready to like kill him and say like it's God's will for me to go kill all the males. Kill every man that was in his family. Especially since Saul had, had tried to kill him earlier. Right. Himself and take the king's life, but yet what would seem to be a lesser insult, he's ready to take up arms and uh, destroy the household. Yeah, I guess we know what not to say to David, though. Right. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, I, I, I even goes so far as to say that uh, he says basically leaves you the impression that he, he he tells his men. I don't know if this is what he really believes, but he says. If I don't punish Nabal, God will punish me. Which I, you know, that's rather strong uh, line to say to your men to get them to do something, you know. Um, uh, let's go ahead and go down to uh, Monday's lesson. And um, Monday's lesson is all about actions here. Um, I'm going to have a couple of y'all read some of these verses where it says, uh, what do the following verses teach about the significance of our actions? Um, does somebody want to grab Matthew 7.21 and somebody else want to grab 25.31-46 and then also James 2.14-17 if we could get three people for that. Uh, first person for Matthew seven twenty one. Okay. Matthew seven twenty one. Yeah. Not everyone who calls me Lord will get into the kingdom of heaven. Only the ones who obey my Father in heaven will get in. Okay. Twenty. Next one's twenty five thirty one to forty six. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers who did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into Strong language. Uh, I'll go ahead and read James two fourteen and 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can this kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you do not give them what the body needs, what good is it? So faith, if it does not have works, is dead, being by itself. Um... Obviously, I feel like, you know, this really cements um, Abigail's character. Um, She didn't just send a message out to David. She didn't just send some items out to David. She comes out to David herself, taking the full risk, the full blame for her husband, um, and doesn't even shy away from calling David out on what he's doing. Um... This is a great picture of of someone living out their faith to me. Uh, not afraid. Not afraid at all. Not afraid uh, to lose her life even uh, over these things. Um, let's go down to the uh, last paragraph here in the lesson on, on Monday here, just below where we just read the verses. It says, uh, talk may be cheap, um, but our actions confirm or contradict our speech. Uh, the, the actions of Abigail, David, and Nabal uh, speak volumes about what they thought, who was important to them, and which spirit motivated their actions. Um, kind of like to talk a little bit about this, the uh, spirit, so to speak, that each one of them display in this story. Uh, na- what you know, I think it's pretty obvious what spirit. Uh, Nabal is of um, what, and what are some of the uh, specific characteristics that we see? I would like to have y'all name some of the specific characteristics we see uh, Nabal display uh, in this story um, that kind of reveal who he is. Arrogance. Arrogance. think the uh, lack of respect for his fellow man. Abusive. Yeah. Yeah, a very uh, power monger, so to speak. Uh, had to have... Exactly. Yeah. Ultimately, fear. Yeah, well, we see that played out 
in the end, he's so afraid, he just has a stroke. Um, um, and yeah, I think that those are pretty good. Um, what about uh, Abigail? What uh, specific characteristics do we see her display in this story uh, that might parallel uh, really the life of Jesus? She was willing to lay down her life if it meant saving the life of her husband and household. Yeah. And it was the, the perfect law of casting out of fear. Even for somebody that wasn't even worthy of it. Right, yeah. I'm impressed with how she's uh, had such wisdom to, to be able to speak the truth in love um, to David, even. I mean, embedded in there is, is you know, some truth about what his actions were about to be, but she did it in a very respectful way. Sure, yeah. A very graceful way, right. uh, tact. You know, she didn't just, even though she was firm with and stood behind the truth, she didn't st- stamp all over and be like, "Who do you think you are coming in here?" And you know, you know. So yeah, um, even looking out for his ultimate well-being. You know, uh, mentioning that he would regret this after he became king. This would be a skeleton in his closet, so to speak. You know. Um, uh, what about um, David? Um, there's two. There's two versions of David here. We see before Abigail comes and talks to him, we've got one version of David, <laughs> and then after Abigail comes and reasons with him, come and reason, uh, he, uh, then we see another David. Um, before Abigail comes, what 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 characteristics do we see David portraying here? something the, uh, the lesson points out. Um, you know, I, when you read stories like this about David, you think, you can't help but think to yourself, I mean, that's such a big title to be God, a man after God's own heart. And you're like, you see him do so many things that are so contrary to what God would do, but then like, what is it at the end of the day that makes him a man after God's own heart? And I think ultimately it's He's never afraid to admit when he's wrong. When, when he's presented with truth, he doesn't deny it. He accepts it and opens his heart to it, and it changes him. You know, right? One moment here he is ready to kill somebody. God speaks through this through Abigail, and instantly all that pride and stuff just melted away. And he said, "You know, you're right. I, I'm in the wrong here." He repented, and then the results were. Um 
from God and not from him. He didn't have to take retribution about yeah. Um, let's see here. And maybe God didn't even take care of what needed to be done. Maybe the consequences of that man's action, the fact that he saw what a fool he had been, mm-hmm. was such a shock to him that that's wrong. Yeah, we, we see two different, two very different uh, uh, consequences of being presented with truth. They uh, all presented with truth, and he suffered the stroke some other way incapacitated and eventually dies, David's confronted with truth and he's healed. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's powerful. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the truth um, can set you free and heal you or it can crush you and, and finish the job, so to speak, if you don't want to let go of the lie. Um, that's powerful to me. Um, Let's see here. Um, you know, some of the things that um, crossed my mind as I was going through this Monday's lesson and going through the story of this was just, you know, I know that we're growing as a as a class. You know, as we start to um, move, you know, move forward, so to speak, and and um, and and now that we've you know come in Reason Ministries and things like that, and and I, I thought. It, it was, you know, I know that we have um, ideas that we've talked about about perhaps starting new ministries and outreaches and things like that. And I couldn't help but um, think in the story, you know, like, you know, it's cool to see, like, not just uh, talking about it, but putting it into action. Um, not just talking, you know, amongst like believers about what we believe and confirming it with each other, but like, the message going out, you know, to the community and maybe, you know, beginning to do things like that where it's, it becomes real. Um, and that's cool because I know that those things are in store and in the works for the class and it's exciting to think about that stuff. Um, I know, I feel like God's really going to bless it when that stuff starts to happen and as we, it already has begun to happen, I should say. Um, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say that women symbolize the church often in the Bible, and, and what her actions were, she lived in a situation that was sinful and um, selfish and self-centered. Her husband was self-centered. It was all about him and his party, not about the world and what they needed. And and she went outside of her environment and contributed. Uh, and um, I think we need to, you know, be like that. Sure, that's a great point. Yes. say almost timeless so to speak because she was in that particular instance in that culture um, 
Absolutely, it was probably not acceptable for a woman to have her own identity and to step out on her own in faith, so to speak. Uh, but she was obviously she knew the Lord and was changed by the Lord because it 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 it, it she made her an individual identified in God and not by her culture, and she wasn't so. Therefore, she had no fear stepping out and, and doing these things. Um, let's see here. Uh, let's move on to Tuesday's lesson. Um, starting in the third paragraph, this will kind of get us into a little bit about intercession. Um, it says, intercession is marked by one common denominator. The person interceding must closely identify with the person he or she is interceding for. Whether or not the interceding person stands to gain anything from the transaction, the person must be willing to put aside his or her own selfish interests and act for what would be best for someone else. Abigail could have seen this threat on Nabal's life as a way of getting rid of her husband and regaining her freedom. Instead, she chooses to identify herself with him and pleads for his undeserving life. Perhaps the very best form of intercession is intercessory prayer. We pray for people who are unable or unwilling to pray for themselves. We have to put our own wants, needs, and wishes aside and talk to God for these people. Our prayers give God the excuse to move deep into Satan's territory. It is in praying for others that we realize the immense compassion that God has for us. We can learn how to bless those who curse us and pray for those who mistreat us. Um, for the most part, I thought that was well stated. I don't like the, it gives God an excuse to move into, I think it's more like permission to move into Satan's territory than it is an excuse. I think God wants, <laughs> is looking to move in there. Um, but other than that, I thought it was pretty well stated. Um, thoughts that y'all have on intercession the way that it is presented right here in these two paragraphs. How um, how do you think that we traditionally present intercession in terms of what Jesus is currently doing for us, interceding for us? Do we traditionally view it as though he's pleading for the life of someone unworthy? Or do we see it more like the story in... Abigail, where he's pleading on behalf, pleading with David. I think uh, I know my for myself. I, I often used to see a great divide between the father and the son in this regard. I, I viewed Jesus in heaven begging, you know, God for mercy upon poor, undeserving, you know, corrupt me and. Um, what a difference it made when I started to see the light of what intercession actually is and that Jesus is intercessing with God to me, trying to turn me to him, not trying to turn God the Father toward me. And I, I, it was the most freeing thing I've ever experienced uh, as a believer. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I, something that's interesting here in the story as far as with Abigail and... Uh, 
David and Nabal is concerned um, is that, you know, I, I could feel like the old model of that I used to have of intercession creeping in as I see Abigail, you know, intercessing to David and, you know, oh, please have mercy on Nabal, you know, and, uh, you know, he, he didn't know what he was doing or whatever, you know. But then I realized she's intercessing to David and he's in the wrong too. And, you know, she's actually intercessing for God to both of these people who are in the wrong, trying to bring them both into common ground and put them back in line with God again. And, and I thought that that was really cool when that came together. And her intercession worked with David, but it didn't help her husband. Yeah, but yet she didn't give any less effort or risk, you know, she was still willing to whisk it all. Did I just say willing to whisk it all? Willing to risk it all. <laughs> right. And it, and it really speaks to her uh, non-judgmental heart. Because, like the lesson said, she very well could have seen this as a, yes, and I finally get to get rid of this dead weight, you know? Like, this guy has been holding me back all these years. She totally didn't see it that way. Um, she was fighting for him just as, you know, hard as anything. And I think the fact that she ended up telling him what she did... <laughs> shows that she was more interested in him being able to face the truth and than just kind of going behind his back right. and, and cleaning up behind him. Right. Um, she really wanted him to be changed. In other words, she wasn't just trying to enable him. Exactly. She wasn't falling into the trap of the abused person right. and just continuing to enable the power monger, but rather she was trying to bring genuine change into his life. Exactly. It's good. Um, let's see, down at the bottom of the page, uh, says, have you ever had someone intercede for you in a situation in which you couldn't take care of yourself? How did that situation help, under, help you under, to understand better what it means to have Jesus interceding on our behalf? Um, and I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, you know, we, we are powerless in our current conditions um, to have any real change on our own. And when, we ex- when, we ha- when you're in a helpless, powerless position and someone helps bring you out of that, um, I think it really does help me be- uh, understand further the, the work that Jesus is currently still doing. Uh, didn't just finish at the cross, but he's, he's still working on bringing us back into line, bringing us back into... Uh, harmony with him. Um, yes? The one thing that you pointed out in here about you know, the person interceding was closely identified with the person he or she is interceding for. Um, and I think that's what puts Jesus in the unique position. Even though he was sinless, he does understand our struggles. And um, he's like our representative of, of someone who puts all the, all the love and mercy of the Godhead in, in you know, t- towards us. And, um, I don't know, that just brings me real comfort. Yeah. yeah it's, it's hard to comprehend when we really sit and contemplate it, how the ruler of the universe can condescend to our level, become 
not just a human being in terms of he was flesh and blood, but in our fallen condition and become one with us fully to that, go to that length, go to that extent. Um, but then at the same time, it reveals to me his, his attitude of love toward us. He doesn't view himself as this power over ruler. He views himself as the servant of all his creation. Um, let's see. Um, let's move forward to uh, Thursday's lesson. Um, let's see, the first paragraph. Unlike many of us, David could take criticism, constructive criticism. And he observes in Abigail's words and workings of in, uh, he observes in Abigail's words the workings of God. In a moment, he sees his, the consequences of his proposed actions and perspective. And he is thankful that God has intervened to prevent a bloodbath. Abigail arrives home to discover, discover um, her husband is, at once, is once again in no condition to listen. And so she wisely waits until the next morning to inform him of what has happened. Nabal is terror-stricken. He most likely suffers a stroke and dies ten days later. David has not forgotten Abigail and sends men to make a marriage proposal for him. Um, you know, and we kind of talked about this already, but, you know, um, I have no question that that's the Holy Spirit speaking through Abigail when he arrives, and David just instantly recognizes it. It's like, even though he's basically crazed with this thought of, taking blood, you know, vengeance for his own name because he's been disrespected to the point where he's ready to go kill all the men. The moment he hears God's voice, it all melts away, drops his pride, and, and there he is, uh, revealed. Um, and I, I just really, uh, really, when I, when I see it in that light, it's much easier to see David as a man after God's own heart rather than focusing on what he did wrong. It's when he's in the wrong, how he responds to the truth. Um, I'm afraid that many people look at it as Abigail thing, which is the father, yeah. don't kill them. I don't think that's the traditional view that you have. I think mean, that's the new idea of what intercession means. But I'm afraid that in many of our Sabbath school classes today, the other view is confusing. Yeah, which, which would make it sort of confusing in a way, because like, if... If David is, is in effect, in God's position here, the position of power, then are we then saying that in this parallel that, he, that God's in the wrong? Because David's in the wrong, you know? So, uh, yeah, um, I, I think it makes much more sense uh, the other way. Um, but then uh, the traditional view is that Jesus pleads with the Father not to... Let us go to hell and die forever. Right. You know, so it's basically the same scenario. So is God in the wrong because people think that He's going to kill us? At the end? Right. Well, but you know, in traditional view and belief system, God's not in the wrong. It's that's how this is how this whole thing works. Uh, just like David was going to kill for vengeance, uh, and it's interesting because even in the story here, David acknowledges that. Um, um, and I, I think I have this later on down at the bottom, but David actually in verse 39 of First Samuel 25, 39, 
It says, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. So what's interesting there is that even though the story kind of narrates it in a way that like you could see that it's just the natural cause of Nabal coming about, you know, and, and recognizing who he really was, and because he was an unchanged heart, he had a stroke and died. Even though you could take that approach in view, it's there. Uh, David himself sort of seems to lean toward the fact that God struck him down, and that uh, that God um, saved him from doing it, but did, him, did it himself, which is an interesting concept, because I think that that's kind of the way that, you know, the popular view in Christianity is that we're not supposed to do it. It's God's job to do that. You know? As, David, as famous for saying, the Lord will kill Saul. Right. You know, I can't kill Saul, the Lord will kill Saul. And the Lord, you know, the scripture tells us quite clearly that Saul got the sword. Right. Uh, and, and I don't think it's reasonable to conclude that God basically putting out Saul's back and forcing him. Right. Right. So, uh, David may have had misconceptions about God. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and that was one of the things that I thought of, and 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 is that you know I I know I have a tendency to be like when I when I hear someone with a traditional view and model of how this all is, and and maybe a traditional view of intercession or traditional view of 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 the cross and why Jesus had to die and these different things. I have a tendency to put up a barrier between me and them because it's like, man, they are just out there and they don't get God. But here's David, obviously a guy after a man after God's own heart who who when the spirit spoke to him, he responded. And yet he still had misconceptions about God himself, still clung to these ideas of of that paganism really teaches that 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 God is going to strike you down if you don't obey him. Uh and, and yet you know, he was a man after God's own heart. So I think for me, it tells me I need to be careful in the way that I approach others when, when I am trying to share my view of who God actually is. Because just because they don't see it the same way I do doesn't mean that they don't actually know God. Absolutely. You know? Do you think that's why Jesus really, part of why Jesus really needed to come to earth was to show us who God really is? We didn't understand God. Right. And lived a humble, um, kind life to everyone. Yeah. So I just think the, the Old Testament doesn't show us the true picture of God completely until Jesus comes. Yeah. Yes. So what would you say is the purpose of intercessory prayer? Yeah. That's 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 one that I still struggle with. Um, it's not that I don't have an a, I just don't have a complete thorough understanding of it, but it's a permission thing for me. I mean, God absolutely anytime he's going to go to work in someone's life has to have permission because the most important thing to him is free will. He's never going to violate free will. And somehow, and and, and it's different, a little bit different with intercessory because like that person's not necessarily asking for it, right? We're asking for it for them. So, you know, that's where it gets tricky to me, but, but still, it's still, 
if enough people wish God to be there and to be present, it just gives him more ability and more resources at that person's disposal to me when they, if they do decide that they want to follow God or that they're open to the Spirit. I mean, there's that much more, I don't know. Do y'all have any thoughts on that? Maybe intercessory prayer has a bigger effect on what he's praying. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, I hear what you're saying, but I think even though God doesn't force, I think still He, of His own accord, can bring the Spirit to us individually. Right. Whether or not it's right. I also think there's something that I reviewed, um, I guess it was in Tuesday's lesson about, about intercession, and one of the things, the verses they talked about was in Daniel, and it's that prayer Daniel prays on behalf of the people. And, it's, and he is. He's identifying with them, even though he has not created in the same manner. Right. I think there's something to it. I, I've tried to reconcile it with the very thing you talked about. You know, it's it's we're all human. We're all in the same boat. And if one of us is willing to say, "Help us," you know, we're we're lost without you, Lord. I think there's. There can be a collective effect. Yeah, that's kind of how I reconcile that that idea. And it's interesting that you brought up Daniel's prayer because the, the the model that I was thinking of it from when I was talking about permission for God to, to to interact in someone's life, we have a clear picture of when Daniel is praying af, after um, he's had the vision and he doesn't have understanding. He's praying for for God to bring him the message of understanding. And then Gabriel, I believe, is it Michael or Gabriel? I forget which the text actually calls the angel that comes. But either way, there's a, I believe it's actually Gabriel because then, then he calls for Michael's help. He's held up by the, by the prince of Persia. And so we have this picture of behind the scenes, what we can't see, an, a, a, an angel battle going on, so to speak, where the evil angels are obstructing the good angels from coming in in and and helping God's will take place. So I do believe that to some degree intercessory prayer has this has to be some of the story here that unless enough people are praying for those angels, you know, like they, they, there needs to be more people on the same page to overpower the evil angels. Um, yeah, that's very dangerous because that crosses over. That's why I said I don't have it all nailed out yet. <laughs> that's, intercessory prayer is a very tricky d- subject for me. I don't, I don't totally get it. Right. I understand elements of it, but, I, but as a whole, I, I, I just don't see the whole picture. And, and I think that's because we can't see into that other dimension where the angels battle, you know? I guess the question is, is intercessory prayer for God or is it for us? Right. Yeah. Again, I mean, I, I just feel like, for the most part, God lets things go. And, you, you know, again, we have to be really careful. We don't think God is like he's, he's meddling with day-to-day, you know, stuff, you know, and that we can somehow sway. I mean, that was their mentality back in the Old Testament, because that, their gods, they would offer sacrifices to it. And all of the Old Testament's really written from that angle, right. because that's what they knew from Egypt. Right, so, right. We have to keep that in perspective. The whole idea of this class, I believe, is that God is love all the time. Right. And all He does is love. And so anything that 
if it's bad, you can say it. Right. You know, and I don't know, you know, some of the stories in the Old Testament are really hard to explain based on that principle, but. Yeah. Good point. Um, let's see here. I'm going to dive in a little bit further into uh, what actually happens to Nabal when um, she confronts him with the truth. Um, I think you have a clear example of, of a parallel of Lot's wife kind of turning to a pillar of salt. That's sort of like turning to stone. Um, what do you all think about the parallels between what happens here with Nabal when, she's, when he's presented the truth and him sort of having a stroke and dying? Is there a definite parallel there? Is it even possible that God had something to do with his death? I guess that would be my ultimate question there. Because, you know, the Bible is, it's definitely there to be seen that it's a natural event here. But even David himself seems to tend to cling to this idea a little bit that God had something to do with it. Is it do you think it's possible at all? And that there could be any circumstance out there that God, it might have been necessary that God have this happen. There's ample precedent for it. I mean, putting 185,000 Syrians to, to sleep. Okay? You know, we, we, can't, we can't lose perspective that uh, Nabal went to sleep. Right. Okay? Not eternal. Right. The same self absorbed uh, self indulgent character that he operated with. Um, so, I mean, it doesn't change my picture of God to, to understand that God may have put him to sleep and put him in time out and, and allowed other events to take place. Nor does, it, nor does it disturb me to think that it's just a consequence of being a part of the truth. Right. Like Ananias and Sapphira. Right. And God may have simply let him go. Yeah. Yeah. So he didn't love him. Right. Well, we don't know. That's not the second death. We're still talking about the first one. Right. Right. We're talking freeze frame. There's a difference between freeze frame and separation from God. Right. I still believe that, like you said, letting. Oh, in the sense that Jesus says, How can I give you up? How can I let you go? I don't mean in the sense of separating. No, I was, yeah, that's what I was, I was yeah. going there. I was saying that there's a difference between the two things. Yeah, sure. Um, I found it interesting that, you know, Tim often talks about the effects of fear uh, and, you know, that self-preservation mentality that it has on the character and it has physiologically on our bodies. Um, and as, as evidenced here in the story, this man is living not a healthy lifestyle here. I mean, the man is partying apparently all the time. He's at these out-of-control feasts and things. So it leads you to believe that perhaps he's living uh, diet-wise, at least, maybe not the healthiest life, which would put him at increased risk for a stroke or a vascular event. Uh, and then we, we, we see clearly that he's living his life in fear. He's living his life in self-preservation. I've got to defend, defend myself, take things for myself, can't give to others. And then when he's confronted with what David did and what, what Abigail did, really it's Abigail, Abigail that really has the effect on him because he realizes you did not have to go out and do this on my behalf. What I deserved was to be abandoned and for David to come in here and wipe me out. And he realizes his love, I, her love, I should say, for him 
I think that's what the real clincher is there that really just sets him over the edge. And, it, and it's very clear. It says, uh, let's see. His heart failed. I don't know. It's just, it just feels like he's just like this overwhelming fear or this overwhelming guilt or whatever just overcomes him. And, it, and I really believe that like that definitely could have set off the stroke. You know, I mean, if he's already at predisposed risks. So, I don't know. It's definitely there in the text to uh, find it as a natural event. Um, let's see here. Um, I'm going to start to close up here. Um, if we go to Friday's lesson, go down to the bottom of the page. There's one of the discussion questions, uh, the, the text there that caught my eye, Matthew 5, 9. It, said, it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And, you know, that's definitely what we see here with Abigail. She's a peacemaker. Um, and so I kind of was trying to dwell upon what does it mean to be a peacemaker? What does a peacemaker look like? How do we make peace without sacrificing truth? I think because that's, the, that's what our culture does. They make the world makes peace at the sake of abandoning morals and principles and truth. But God and his servants are able to make peace without doing that. And how is that possible? Um, and, you know, I am overwhelmingly am impressed and feel that Abigail's actions in this story parallel with Jesus so closely. Um, and I have this last, uh, this last here close here. It's thoughts from the from Mount of Blessings, page twenty-seven, and it's a little description here of what it means to be a peacemaker. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Christ is the Prince of Peace, and it is His mission to restore to earth and heaven the peace that sin has broken. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever consents to renounce sin and open his heart to the love of Christ becomes a partaker of this heavenly peace. There is no ground, there is no other ground of peace than this. The grace of Christ received into the heart subdues enmity. It, it allays strife and fills the soul with love. He who is at peace with God and his fellow men cannot be made miserable. Envy will not be in his heart. Evil surmisings will, not, will find no room there. Hatred cannot exist. The heart that is in harmony with God is a partaker of the peace of heaven and will diffuse its blessings is, and will diffuse its blessed influence on all around. The spirit of peace will rest like dew upon the heart's weary and troubled with worldly strife. Christ's followers are sent to the world with the message of peace. Whoever, by the quiet, unconscious influence of a holy life, shall reveal the love of Christ. Whoever, by word or deed, shall lead another to renounce sin and yield his heart to God is a peacemaker. And I just, I thought that summarized Abigail's life, I thought it summarizes Jesus' life, and it's a clear model of 
what we are to be in terms of our mission to this world. And uh, so I just found that powerful. Well, looks like I'm ending a few minutes early and we can get a few more comments in here. Presenting the truth in love, and that means um, not in a harsh way, but in a very gentle, loving way like Jesus did. We often come out there with the truth, I'm right and you're wrong, and hammer it over people's heads instead of doing it in a gentle, loving way by our actions more than anything. Because if we don't live the truth, then there is no truth in us. Right. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray that you'd be with everyone in this room this week. I pray that we could have a clear vision of what it means to be a peacemaker, what it means to intercede on others' behalf, what it means to have other people's interests at heart, and uh, that you would help inspire us to find those at work and find those at in, in the places of business and in, in, in our interactions that we have with others, that when we see someone who's weary and downtrodden, and that we can have pity on them, and that we can that we can uh, lead them to you, and that we can share the truth we have in a loving way that um, helps them see who who clearly you are. We thank you for your love. We thank you for these stories of people like Abigail, who show such selfless love towards others, and we pray that your Holy Spirit can apply that to our heart and that we can be like her and in turn be like you. I thank you so much for your love. I pray that you continue to be with this class throughout the week and that you would bless them and lead them forward into the week. Thank you for these things. We thank you for this Sabbath day. And we pray that the peace that we find on this Sabbath day can be in our heart throughout this week. We thank you for these things and we pray them in Jesus' name.